Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. As city dwellers, we need to think about how to improve our local parks, how to improve access to those parks, how to improve the quality of those parks, how to get kids outside. We need to think about making our schoolyards more nature-friendly, our workplaces more nature-friendly, and so on. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. One of my clients who actually found me on a podcast was recently lamenting about how much she learned from podcasts, but also felt like she was getting so much information, she didn't know what to do with it or take from it. Learning is everything in life, but how do you remember what you learn or put it into action? Well, we grow and retain our learning when we share it with others. That's why I want to invite you to my new Facebook group for the Less Stressed Life podcast, the Learn, Grow, Share Circle.com. This group started as texts with friends and listeners talking about those aha moments from episodes. I thought, why don't we all get to have this talk? When you listen to an episode and wonder, did anyone else try that? I want to be able to share updates and things I've learned since the episode recording. And now more than ever, community is of paramount importance. To join the group, just go to learngrowsharecircle.com and join the conversation. I called it learngrowsharecircle.com because that's really how I see this. That's how I feel about podcasts. You want to share your aha moments, your wins, your questions, your thoughts to get the most out of this podcast. I'll see you there. Okay, so I have to tell you the backstory on how we're talking to today's guest, who is Florence Williams. I actually download, I buy, I get a lot of books, and I do not finish them. However, I find Florence fascinating and her work fascinating and her writing fascinating. And I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you will find it fascinating too. We're going to talk all about stress resilience today in such a fun, fun way. So let me tell you about Florence first. Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. Her first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology. Does anyone else have a hard time saying breasts as it rolls out their tongue? I don't know. It was named Notable Book of 2012 by New York Times. Her most recent book, The Nature Fix, was an Audible bestseller and was named a top summary by J.B. Morgan. She's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and freelance writer 
writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, and numerous other publications. She's also the writer and host of two Gracie award-winning Audible original series, Breasts Unbound and The Three-Day Effect, as well as Outside Magazine's Double X Factor podcast. A fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. This audience just loves the science on why we should do things. So welcome, Florence. Oh, thank you so much, Krista. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I have been trying to nail down Florence for a year to talk about this because I really enjoyed the application of nature on stress resilience, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about. But we're going to talk about this nature concept. How did you get into this topic in the first place? I got into this topic because I moved. (laughs) I used to live in the Rocky Mountains. I lived in Colorado and Montana for 20 years of my adult life. And then my family picked up and moved to the heart of Washington, D.C. And I noticed this tremendous change, you know, kind of in my own psyche, in my stress levels. I felt like a stress bomb went off in my brain you know, when I got to the city. And it was partly because of the noise. I think, you know, I didn't sort of, I hadn't lived near sort of loud urban sounds, you know, and and actually most of us do live that way. And I just, you know, for me, it was this kind of shocking change and it stressed me out. (laughs) And, you know, there was like the traffic and just the monochromatic sort of nature of living in a city, so much gray, so many kind of linear lines, right? And I just wasn't sleeping very well. I was anxious. I got depressed. And I, I just started really thinking about sort of how our external landscape gets reflected in our internal emotional landscape. And I wondered what the science had to say about that. And then what happened? So then I was really fortunate to get an assignment from Outside Magazine to write about why nature makes us feel so great. So my challenge was to, you know, find out if there were any ongoing studies, figure out where they were and and go report on them. And so I went to my editor and I said, okay, look, I found this research going on in Japan. Can you send me to Japan? (laughs) And they were like, well, okay. So in Japan, you know, Japan has this very, very stressed out population. They work the longest sort of work days, the longest hours of really anyone in the industrialized world, very high rates of suicide high rates of depression. And the government has really been promoting this concept that they call Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, which is this idea that you go into the woods, there are lots of woods in Japan, and you kind of try to turn off your thinking brain. And you do that by turning on your sensory brain. And there are actually forest bathing rangers. There are doctors who will lead forest bathing trips. And they'll give you cues, you know, like, really close your eyes, take some deep breaths. What do you hear? You know, feel the the bark on this tree, drink some tea, you know, made from this particular kind of flower. So it's a very, very sensory experience. And, And what the researchers were finding, and this was what was compelling to me, was that after just 15 minutes of sort of, you know, opening your senses, you know, in a forest, they were finding this 4% drop in blood pressure, a similar drop in respiration rates and um, heart rate variability. They were finding a drop in cortisol, which is, you know, often a stress hormone, and as well as kind of increases on more subjective questionnaires of things like mood and your levels of frustration. And they, you know, at first I was kind of skeptical of all this because I thought, well, people are walking around in in the woods, you know, just exercise alone, right, is going to make you sort of feel better and feel healthier. But the researchers were actually controlling for that 
by having people also walk the same amount of time uh, in an urban area. And they were really only seeing these positive benefits on the nervous system and on people's moods um, in the forest walkers. So that's what started it. I love it. I thought to myself, why maybe we should implement this in the United States. What was this called that they shut? I did not catch it. Yeah, Shinrin Yoku or forest bathing. And so I wrote that article for Outside. And then I wrote kind of a similar story for National Geographic, looking at researchers in other parts of the world. You know, because it turns out there was actually quite a lot of research going on. You know, some people were looking at brain waves, some people were looking at stress hormones, some people were looking at, um, you know, cognitive measures of creativity and productivity and so on. And, and actually since then, and, you know, the book came out several years ago, I did the research, you know, a couple of years before that, there's actually been an explosion of interest in this topic, I think partly because we are aware of how plugged in we are and how like profoundly disconnected right, from nature we are, what an urban species we've become. And, and I think a lot of scientists, as well as just parents and educators and all sorts of people are interested in the implications of that. So there's actually just been a ton going on. And it's been super interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk first about the physiology. And then we'll talk about how you actually have to do this in order to see the results. Because what we want, we want changes. We want to be able to feel changes. So some of these things you can feel, but it's fun to put the science behind it, right? Like what changes in the brain? You talked about how the heart essentially slows down when you talked about the drop in blood pressure and heart rate variability, which is essentially a measure of kind of your age, really. If your heart rate, if your heart rate variability is a mess for a long time, it correlates with being really older than you are. And that's probably not how some people would describe it. But your heart rate variability not dropping is just not good. We want it to drop a certain time at bedtime, etc. And when it doesn't, so I track this every night, but things that'll keep your heart rate variability up would be eating late, you know, just like not having a good schedule or circadian rhythm will throw it off. And so then essentially circadian rhythm can have a downstream effect on overall total health. But let's talk about physiology. So what do you physically see? And what do you see on the inside when you get into nature? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. So that Japanese study showed after 15 minutes, you see these changes in heart rate variability and blood pressure and respiration. In other studies have shown actually that your immune system changes. So especially if you're in a forest, this is where the research has been done, although I think it would probably hold true in other kinds of vegetation. But, you know, trees emit these aerosols that are sort of antibacterial. They protect the trees against fungus and bacteria. And it turns out that when humans kind of breathe in these aerosols, it also increases the human killer T cell ratio. So killer T cells are parts of our immune system. We use killer T cells to fight off infections, to fight cancer. It's really important to have you know, sort of healthy killer T cells. And some researchers have shown that our killer T cells increase like 20 to 30% after going for a walk in a forest. And in fact, that elevation remains high for especially seven days. So this researcher I met with in Japan said, you know, we really need to go to the woods or go to nature where there's some sort of vegetation. Every weekend, right? Yeah. Well, and, and so, I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, if you can go for a weekend, that'd be great. Since then, there have been these really large-scale studies, too, looking at just human health in general, sort of correlated with, you know, diseases and morbidity. In Finland, researchers there have found out that you can actually prevent mild depression. You can prevent mild depression if you're in nature areas, five, a minimum of five hours a month. So 
that translates to, you know, maybe two visits a week of just 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes. And then in the UK, this is actually since the book came out just last summer, there was a really interesting study showing that people were healthiest and happiest who spent a minimum, well, not even a minimum, but sort of sort of within the general range of two hours a week outside. Didn't have to be all at once. It could be spread out through the week. But if you, you know, if you could just be outside and you didn't even have to be exercising necessarily, you know, you could be sitting in a park, you could be, you know, in your backyard. But if you're able to kind of appreciate, you know, the kind of the present moment and sort of, you know, taking in the immersive experience of being in nature, that means like listening to the birds and looking at the trees and maybe watching the sunset. The people who do that are the healthiest people in the UK. (laughs) So, and then there are other studies, you know, as you mentioned, looking at brainwaves, showing that, in fact, we can rest our frontal cortex when our sensory brain turns on. And that in turn, that it's almost like our frontal cortex, which is like our thinking brains, it's where we kind of manage our to do lists. It's where we do tasks, it's where we do planning. That's the part of the brain that most of us live in sort of all day in modern life, which is not necessarily true of our ancestors, right? And if we can turn that brain off, dial it down, you know, for some amount of time, you know, from even just a few minutes to looking out your window at a tree to a few days of being outside, that when we go back to our tasks, we're actually fresher and smarter. So there's this idea that, you know, our frontal cortex is almost like a muscle. And if we can rest it, it's stronger when we go back to using it. Mm, I love it. I think one thing where people could get hung up here is that sometimes we create when you feel like a stress bomb went off in your life, as you referenced earlier. I was talking about this with someone a few hours ago is that I think we have a bit of a, a sliding scale on stress. We start to adapt to it, right? And we start to see signs like we're grouchy and not very nice to people, etc. And it, those things kind of hit you like a slap in the face when you realize what they are. And then high performers will push past that and say, I'm fine. Like, I've just got to keep going. And that's resistance, right? And so you start ignoring things. And when you get to that point, and then eventually it's burnout. But when you get to even that resistance stage, sometimes at first, it's uncomfortable to take time off, you don't really know what to do, you feel a little lost. And I think those of us that sometimes struggle with like things like meditation, which is also helping with that prefrontal cortex. And so when you talk about this, if you're talking about that sensory experience, if you haven't done this before, it's probably a little bit uncomfortable. Did you experience that when you were doing all the research? for the book. Yeah, absolutely. I am one of those people. I am one of those kind of, you know, high achievers who's really comfortable just pushing through (laughs) my discomfort and being like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And for me to try to turn off my frontal cortex, you know, is really, really challenging. But I have some tips, you know, that I have learned through writing the book, and they've been really helpful to me, and I'm happy to share them. Um, You know, it's like, how do you turn on your sensory brain And researchers, you know, God bless them, they're also high achievers and they've thought a lot about this. So there are certain prompts, you know, that we can use. And one of them is when I'm out, I say, I do close my eyes. So if you close your eyes, you know, it's amazing what happens. We're such visual creatures, right? And our other senses automatically kind of sharpen. And when I do that too, if I take some deep breaths, I can then find the space to ask myself these specific questions. Like, what am I hearing? You know, especially what are the birds? Because I don't want to just hear traffic <laughs> or airplanes, you know, which I, well, I think many of us can when we're in an urban park. But what are the birds? What is the sound of the breeze? You know, do I hear weather? Do I hear water? 
And of course, now I actually make an effort to try to hike or walk near places that do have water features because the science has shown that when we can hear water and when we can hear the sound of birds, it actually really resonates in our nervous systems in ways that make us feel more comfortable and more relaxed, even in you know very subconscious ways. I make an effort also to smell things on my walks. So I will pull off you know a clump of evergreen needles, for example, and I'll smash them up and I'll smell them. Um, and I'll walk around, you know, holding these pine needles and smelling them. I will also, you know, sometimes touch things. Like if I see, you know, a cattail or a kind of a fuzzy leaf or something, hopefully it's not poison ivy. Um, Mm -hmm. I really try to sort of tune in to exactly where I am and what kind of sensory experiences I can feel. So that's one thing. And then I will also just say one other thing, which is that I learned a lot through writing The Nature Fix and and doing the three-day effect about the science of awe, you know, A-W-E, and how when we experience beauty, sort of even sudden or shocking beauty, but also quieter beauty, that automatically kind of turns our thinking brains off. It kind of stills us for a moment and arrests us where we are. You know, I think we probably all can sort of relate to the idea of, you know, suddenly seeing the moon rising on the horizon or catching a sunset that we weren't expecting or, you know, just a butterfly crossing our path. And it, it kind of stops our thinking brains for a minute, which is, it turns out that that's a really, really helpful thing <laughs> for our moon states and for our sort of overly invested egos. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now when I'm on these walks, I also make an effort to try to find a couple of shockingly beautiful things. And, you know, and it's, it's funny that you have to ask yourself to do this, but you know, when we're on our phones or we're thinking about something, it's amazing what we can walk by and not notice. So I'll say to myself, okay, what do I see that's really beautiful? And there's always something, you know, there's a flower, there's a leaf that has fallen in a crack on a sidewalk. And then I stop for a minute and I look at it and I pay attention to it. I take a couple of deep breaths. And just that very, very simple act has been shown to really just improve our day. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. I think when I think about tangible things here, I think about the importance of sometimes pets and animals because they force us to go do things automatically rather than saying, okay, now I have to find time to go outside, which is like hilarious to, for me to even verbalize it in that way. Because when you're giving these times and when we think about this, the majority of people were inside dwellers and we're talking about things where it's five hours per month. That's not very much time outside, my friends. Right. So sometimes we have to say to ourselves, what percentage of our day is really out? I I was reading a study kind of about people's disgruntledness with quarantine. It was from March and people talked about they were happy if they went outside, but they were grouchy if they watched the news. I mean, wow, of course, but we spent 8% of our time outdoors, which I thought, man, that's minuscule. Right. But then I think about my own life and I think, Oh, I see how that happens. And another side note here, when you're talking about stopping, you're basically saying that the tips essentially are literally, how can you explore all of your senses essentially? And if you do that, it's a very different impact. So if you know me very well, you might know that I have these chickens. And so I like to spend time. It's almost silly how much joy I get from going out and 
like checking on the chickens, making sure their food is okay and their water is okay. And now I have a couple of pigs. And it's funny because this week I've been really good and diligent about it. And I was going through kind of a stressful slump the month before. And I know anytime I would go outside, I'd throw a pot. I tried to put something in and I was always frustrated. And I think it's because it was overstimulating, right? And there wasn't a rest time. And so I just felt that so tangibly and so realistically. So I wanted to <laughs> wanted to share that my own perspective there. And I'm sure you could, you could tag in, but I do want to talk about awe as well. And so until I looked at my book notes, so when I'm listening to Audible, there's a little spot where you can clip a note. I didn't realize that I had learned about awe from your book. But I remember a year ago being at a conference and telling some friends about, I used to think there was just really two emotions, happiness and fear, and everything could stem out of that. But you and the researcher you highlighted in the book really featured that awe is maybe if there was a contest for a third emotion, that should be it right there is awe. Well, there, I think there are technically like five or six positive emotions, including things like, you know, surprise even can sometimes be a positive emotion, joy. I mean, there's lots of different gradations, but it turns out that awe is a very understudied positive emotion. It's one that's been sort of largely overlooked in the scientific literature until recently. And it's a super fascinating emotion and one that I think humans are particularly sort of wired to experience. So, you know, if you look at religion, for example, one of the reasons why many of us find religion appealing and valuable is because religions have worked very hard, you know, to kind of manipulate our feelings of awe. So, for example, giant cathedrals, you know, the rituals of the music, you know, which is so powerful and beautiful. These are experiences that when, when we feel them, when we feel these, these powerful emotions, they make us actually feel more connected to each other. And they also make us feel more connected to the larger world around us. So religions have figured that out. Um, but really, we should all be tapped into this because when we experience that feeling of connection... It makes our own personal lives and our personal problems seem a little bit smaller by comparison. Mm. And so, you know, you look at the Milky Way, for example, right? We've all had this experience where you just feel like, oh, I'm just the speck in the universe. And it's not a depressing thought. It's actually kind of a beautiful thought. It's like we're all in this together, right? And now, you know, during a pandemic, I mean, this is also a very powerful and important experience for us to have because we need to feel like we're in this together. Um, and there's so many other things dividing us right now. Mm-hmm. Beauty and nature, I feel like, are very, very powerful for sort of bridging differences. Psychological studies have shown that after we, in a lab even, if we look at a picture of something beautiful like a waterfall or a whale jumping, as compared to people looking at pictures of a shopping mall or a freeway, <laughs> Out of beautiful photos, we will give away more lottery tickets. We'll perform better on teams. We are more sort of pro-social. We'll help each other out more. So I think that's a really fascinating lesson from some of this research. Yeah, it feels hard to put tangible on it, right? Because it feels a little subjective. And you had said, you know, awe isn't very well studied. Well, it kind of feels subjective. I wonder what happens in the brain when you're in awe versus something else. I don't know. Well, there have been some studies looking at that. And they're super interesting. When we experience awe, it looks like many different parts of our brains. Well, at first, they just kind of freeze for a minute because we're just trying to take it in. Like we're not really trying to 
understand what it is the minute we're seeing it and like our jaws will drop and our eyebrows will lift. So there's a sort of moment of freeze. And then there is suddenly this moment of what was that? This kind of window of cognitive learning when we might turn to each other and be like, hey, did you see that? That was an eclipse. You know, what was that? (laughs) And it's this sort of rare moment where we're not able to instantly categorize what we look at and sort of move on, where we actually want to stop for a moment. And then our brains form these new connections and our brains become highly connected. It looks like in MRI studies after we look at something beautiful. So in this way, that can help us boost our creativity. It can help us boost our empathy for other people help boost, you know, more wide ranging, long term kinds of self concept. So it's super, super beneficial. Well, you're talking about some things that might make some people light up, right? Like improving creativity and empathy. And I know that with the nature effect, essentially, you can also improve productivity, which we kind of talked about that if you rest the prefrontal cortex, and we feel more creative and kind of refreshed, it'll boost productivity. Do they see that? I mean, you've really been in the research around it. So have you seen those? We talked about those uh, biochemical markers, essentially heart rate variability, respiration, blood pressure. But is there anything measuring productivity? Yeah, there are things measuring productivity. I'm aware of a couple of studies that have looked at people, for example, outward bound backpackers, or people going on canoeing trips in the wilderness. There have been two studies that kind of replicated each other. The researchers will give these you know, expeditioners a test of creativity before the trip and then when they get back. And then they'll do the same with a control group of people who didn't leave town, but to see if there was just a practice effect, you know, from taking the study twice. And what they showed is really just in the wilderness kind of expeditioners is 50%, actually, 50% improvement in this particular measure of creativity. In this case, it was sort of a, a word test that measures, I think it's like divergent creativity, which is sort of creativity where you're where you're thinking of things that you don't necessarily know with it, you're sort of being creative with it. And 50% improvement is huge. Who wouldn't want a 50% improvement creativity? You don't see that. You don't even see that in research. When you said that earlier, you were talking about improving human killer T cells 20 to 30%. This is absurd, right? You don't get changes like this in research. It's like very minuscule, usually. So to have these kind of measurable changes by breathing air outside. It's like without side effects. Right. Um, So, but now they're trying to figure out what the mechanism is, you know, like, can we actually see what's activating in the brain? What's deactivating in the brain? Where is the sort of blood flowing instead? And that's where it gets a little trickier. So I don't think that the neuroscientists who are looking at this, I don't think they've totally figured it out. It looks like maybe, you know, the sort of midline frontal theta waves that are associated with these tasks, maybe sort of quieting down, you know, outside in nature as the sensory brain turns on. And then again, like, you know, those theta waves are able to sort of come back online even stronger when we go back to these tasks. But I think, you know, that's to be determined. Yeah. So I listened to the three day effect, which talked about it gave some very specific case examples where you had people with PTSD, you had a few different examples where they'd gone out into the wilderness, it was a whitewater rafting trip or or something like that. And what you saw was when you came back, we saw an improvement in stress resilience for as you I believe said a week. And I think you referenced this in different terms and before. So does this mean you need to spend does it take three days to have major changes? What happens in three days? Versus if you go outside and take a walk on your lunch break? Yeah, great question. I think a lot of people are really interested in the dose. (laughs) You know, like how much nature do we need? What are the effects of different doses? And honestly, there are 
some really, really positive benefits of just being outside for 15 minutes. So like I mentioned, you know, improved mood, you know, it sort of increased, you know, restoration, feelings of restoration. These things may not last very long, which is why we need it's kind of a daily drip a little bit, if you will, you know, of something pretty to look at and calm us down like our ancestors had, right? They always had the stars, they had the sunsets, they had the sort of, you know, pretty things to look at as part of their stressful lives that we have kind of been disconnected from. But when you're really outside for multiple days, that's when some really, really interesting and sort of deeper things start happening to us, I think, emotionally and psychologically. So, you know, if you think about it, I mean, different cultures throughout time have ritualized, you know, this time in wilderness, especially during rites of passage, for example, when, you know, like in life transitions, kids, you know, going through puberty or, you know, women going through marriage, the marriage ceremony, or, you know, people undergoing sort of other important changes in their lives may find these three days outside particularly useful. So times of change, times of grief, times of trauma. So, you know, I, for the podcast, we spend time with veterans with post-traumatic stress and research there has found that after multiple days outside, you know, their sensory systems are really able to sort of open up and come online in ways that had been more shut down before because of hypervigilance, because of anxiety, and so on. They were able to sleep better. They felt like food tasted better. They felt more comfortable socially, which we know is incredibly important for psychological resilience. Being outside for multiple days really facilitated all those other changes that we know are so helpful. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so I think this really was born out of you moving from a more outdoor friendly environment to not as maybe a more of yes. a, a concrete environment. So a concrete job. Yes. And you've kind of talked about some ways to turn on that sensory brain with different prompts, like closing your eyes, asking yourself what you hear that's not traffic, <laughs> breeze, water, et cetera, and touch and try to touch something. You know, what would you say in addition to that, if anything, what if your outdoor environment is really chaotic and creates stress? Because that's really where this came from. So what is your action? And you still live there. You still live in, in the concrete jungle. So what do you what do you do? So I have learned just so many lessons for how to appreciate nature nearby. And I think it's accessible to me in Washington, D.C. It can be accessible to anyone pretty much. But it's why nature access actually becomes a very interesting topic once you start getting into areas of you know racial justice and social justice. I believe that we now have a sense that biophilia, you know, our love of nature mm. is deeply rooted and is, in fact, it's critical to our well-being. And so as city dwellers, we need to think about how to improve our local parks, how to improve access to those parks, how to improve the quality of those parks, how to get kids outside. We need to think about schoolyards, making our schoolyards more nature friendly, our workplaces more nature friendly and so on. But as someone who lives in a city, if we take a little bit of an effort, you know, sort of with an understanding that actually this will improve our moods, will improve our relationships, will improve our productivity, make it a little bit more of a priority to go someplace where we can find some peace. So, you know, most cities in this country have fantastic parks and they even have, you know, just urban trees. When we're walking somewhere, you know, make an effort to walk on a street that has more trees, a place where you can hear more birds. One thing I do is I encourage people to look at the sky. You know, wherever you are, you can go outside and look up 
And, you know, you can see different light. You can see different weather. You can look at the clouds. You can look at the sunset. One thing I've been doing during pandemic times is walking about five blocks to a place in my neighborhood where I can see the sunset. And the amazing thing is how many other of my neighbors had the same idea. And it's been a really kind of magical feeling of community. And I think, you know, during this time, a lot of us are finally, maybe finally appreciating that nature does um, calm us down a little bit and it makes us remember what's good. I love that. We've had some people on the podcast in recent months where we did all about circadian rhythm and light therapy. And so actually the health benefits of looking at the sunset is that you're going to release melatonin. So you're going to sleep better that night. And so if you're missing that, I remember being at a conference for several days last year in Philly, and I'd go outside to look for the sun and I could not find it. And so when you say you had to walk five blocks, I understand now the pain. So it's not necessarily... Simple. And I actually have a client who's not even a huge city dweller, but she just talks about how I can't see the sun from where I live right now. And so, you know, it makes a bit and it has made a huge difference in her circadian rhythm and how she sleeps. And we know that we sleep for a third of the day on purpose. <laughs> so there, there is there is some benefit there. Uh, there's another circadian tip, which is actually you're right going out at night is super helpful. But so is early morning light, apparently. And I also try to go for a little walk kind of early in the morning. And that also helps reset our circadian rhythms. Yeah. I recommend too. That's most important for cortisol awakening response, which is you should have cortisol rise in the morning so you can get out of bed and feel good. And that's literally exactly what you said, which is sunlight in the morning, which is full spectrum light helps program that it hits our skin, it hits our eyes, etc. And I've really been on a kick around this quite a bit lately. <laughs> if you roll over and look at your phone first, it tells you it's it basically says it's now noon instead of the type of like it's just incredible what um, yeah. these little things and so you know the good or the bad thing is is that this is free sort of in a way right to an extent like right. going outside to be in nature is, is no one is charging you for that but we tend to not always do or embrace those free things or we think it's going to be some other thing so what would you say to someone who maybe knows that this is a important piece but start something stops it. Like, what would you say about creating habits around this or making it part of like making it simple? What would you say to that person? I would say start small, you know, maybe think about, you know, trying to have a meal outside, you know, take your plate outside if the weather allows, you know, just sit there for a meal and see how you feel. Or, you know, maybe go to a place where you can listen to birds. And it actually, if you can't, you know, if that's hard to do, even listening to an app recording of bird song or water song is like a nice kind of meditative practice. So I think there are lots of ways to do it that aren't necessarily intimidating. I'm not talking about, you know, climbing a mountain. I'm just talking about trying to find a place where you can hear some nature and feel like you're immersed in it. And then what I also really encourage people to do is just pay attention. Pay attention to how you feel. Don't go outside with your earbuds on. You know, don't go outside with your phone, you know, while you're talking on the phone. Just really be present and try to tune in to sort of how your body feels. And you may actually notice, you know, that your mood is a little brighter. You may notice that your breathing feels a little bit deeper. You may notice that you feel a little bit calmer. And I think, you know, once we 
actually can draw this cause and effect, it's much easier to motivate ourselves to do it on a regular basis. Yeah. It's the habit loop, right? We feel the reward, we're more likely to do it again. Sometimes we just have to be reminded about the reward, which is why you're here listening to this podcast. So thank you for being here. You are and, awesome. And I, you know, I recommend that people go out even when the weather is crummy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're about to head into winter and it's not always easy <laughs> to sort of open that front door. But again, pay attention to how you feel after being outside for a little while. And my guess is you may notice that you feel more alert. You know, your memory may be a little bit sharper. Studies have shown that even in winter, our mental capacities really improve after a break outside. Yeah. And I think if there was ever a time where it was very important and we don't do it, it is winter because traditionally people say, I become depressed this time of year. And so this is where that light therapy and circadian rhythm work and trying to get outside during that day. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of us, maybe we can stop and ask ourselves, could I go outside and see the sun in the middle of the day? Could I go outside and see the sun in the morning? Could I see the sun at night? If I just had to do those things, is that like, we just have to ask ourselves, can we do these things? Okay. Yep, the answer is yes. Now, see what the moon is doing too. That's been really fun for me, you know, lately too, is just like kind of keeping tabs on the phase of the moon. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to do. And it's this moment of joy and awe in my day. Yeah. And I think that's a great tip also for parents to try to make this a more of a, yeah, I don't know about you, but I rely a lot on accountability and you could create without work an activity where you could ask your kids to get excited about this and you could track it together and it could become... I don't know, kind of a cool thing, you know, and they are, they're kind of keeping you accountable because sometimes you create these ideas in your head that you're going to go do this thing. But if you tell a five-year-old to help you do that, I bet they'll help you with it <laughs> because and I'm guessing they're motivated. Most little kids are actually so, so happy to be outside. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to really push them to do it. Yes. <laughs> they want to run around out there and they love it. Yeah. We had our first snow yesterday and before our school started, they were in all their snow gear already. It was a good thing we took it out the night before and they're out pushing snow around in trucks. And I thought, I don't even want to tell you to come to school. Just keep playing, guys. You're doing great. Doing great. That's all you need to do today, guys. <laughs> so exactly. Well, this was a pleasure to talk to all about you. stress resilience. I really appreciate you coming on. If you do you have a gut reaction about anything else you want people to know? or take away from this conversation today? And then where can people find you online? My motto is that I, that I like to tell people is just um, go outside and go often. And please bring kids with you if you can, because we need to help them get connected to nature and sort of express the natural innate connection that we all have. Yeah, I love it. If people want to learn more about me, they can find me on my website, which is florencewilliams.com. Awesome. Thanks again so much for being here. And I'll be reading the next book soon. (laughs) Thank you so much, Krista. It's been a pleasure. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 